The Water Values Podcast, Session 128. to the Water Values Podcast. This is the podcast dedicated to water utilities, resources, treatment, reuse, and all things butter. Now here's your host, Dave McGibbs. Hello and welcome to another session of the Water Values Podcast. As my daughter Sarah said, my name is Dave McGimsey and thanks so much for joining me. We've got a great show for you today. We have Jeff Engelstein of Mars International. Jeff is an electrical engineer by trade. He did not grow up in the water industry, but he's been around it for about the past five years or so. Uh, and he's had his company, Mars International, at uh, AWWA ACE for the past three years. Maybe you've seen him there if uh, you've attended that trade show. Um, in any event, he's going to come and talk with us about the Internet of Things and how it's impacting and has impacted the water industry and kind of give us his thoughts about where it's going to take us. Uh, so it's a, it's a fascinating conversation because I feel like a lot of us don't really know what the Internet of Things is. It's used pretty loosely, as Jeff will uh, confirm. So it's going to be a great conversation to have uh, with Jeff, and that's coming right up. But first, a little housekeeping. As I promised last time, I was going to uh, come back to some of the great ratings and reviews that were left on Apple Podcasts. The first one is by Civilized Engineer. A five-star rating and Civilized Engineer says... Fantastically relevant podcast. Disclaimer, it took me a really long time to figure out how to sign back into my iTunes account to leave a review, but I did just because this podcast is so great. I'm a civil engineering student, and I am super appreciative of the relevance of this podcast that it has in terms of current water sector issues. Keep up the great conversation. Thanks so much for the great rating and review, Civilized Engineer. The next one is by Relta HJD. And Relta HJD says, water is essential for life, five stars. The Water Values Podcast is an essential resource for water professionals and enthusiasts. Dave is, terrific. Dave is a terrific host and interviewer. He's bringing us such valuable insights across water. David, thank you, and keep up the great work. Well, thanks very much, Relta HG. HJD. I really appreciate that, and I will continue to uh, keep up the great work. Well, hopefully it's great. Um, in any event... Those are the ratings and reviews that were most recent on Apple Podcasts. Thanks so much. If you're enjoying the show, please feel free to sign into Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, whatever uh, podcast directory you happen to be on, and leave a rating and a review. We greatly appreciate it. It's just a great way to uh, tell others why you think the, the Water Values Podcast is worth a listen. So now let's get to Jeff Engelstein. Open the valves, fasten your seatbelts, and here we go. Well, Jeff, welcome to the Water Values Podcast. Glad you could take some time out of your day to come join us. Uh, for starters, can you tell us a little about your background? So thanks for having me on. But just to, uh, yeah, about myself, I am an electrical engineer by trade, although uh, uh, about 20 years ago I started a company to do consulting engineering services um, for a variety of industries. So there's no Mars products per se, but, you know, we help out people to, uh, to make their products. And um, we have been in the radio industry for a while. We were doing garage door openers and access controls and, and those types of radio transmitters and receivers. And so from there, we saw about five years ago an opportunity to get into the Internet of Things market. Uh, and obviously, everybody wants their products on the Internet. Everyone wants to have apps and web control. Um, so we really started focusing on that and have uh, from there branched out into a variety of different industries, including the, the water market. Yeah. That, so Internet of Things, that's that's the word, that's the phrase that jumped out at me when you were kind of describing your background. Uh, for 
it seems everyone talks about the IOT or the internet of things. What, and I'm not sure that everyone's on the same page when, when they're talking about that from, from your perspective in the industry, what is the internet of things? basically a way of taking a, a device. It can be something really big. Uh, it can be something really tiny um, and, and get that connected in a way that people can access it. Um, so it's, it's basically all of the infrastructure that makes that happen. Um, and so some people say IoT is just transporting data. IoT is, you know, the devices themselves. But we just look at it, you know, very simply um, as being able to monitor and control. Those are the two, two things that people want to do. Right, right. So, you know, I had a, a client about 10 years ago who who was uh, very forward-thinking, and he, he was saying, you know, if, if and he was a utility director, and he kind of said, you know, I, I want to be able to, to if, if someone's behind in their bill, I want to be able to turn their, their, their water off via my phone, you know, or via a control panel at work, um, and, and how prescient that was. Uh, but in, in any event, um, uh, this is obviously the Water Values Podcast. Can you tell us a little about, you know, you're in the technology space. You're not necessarily, uh, you haven't grown up in the water space. So how, how does, you know, how does Mars International, uh, you know, what, what's the impact on water? How, how, how did you guys get in and in, in and interested into the water sector? Okay, so in the water sector, what, uh, where do you see the lowest hanging fruit for IoT applications? Mm-hmm. Or yep. a little bit away, but you know, they're looking to move into 
cellular is what they're seeing as the, the future. And um, we can get into some of the other different technologies that support that. But um, you know, there's just a lot of data that's out there in the field that it would be really useful to people to, to have in their hands, um, metering being one of them. Um, being able to kind of on the fly detect uh, detect quality, detect leakage, to detect um, it, it's just a lot of different things. And you know, for, for water treatment, we're seeing that the, the things are very distributed, just kind of geographically. Things are in different areas. So um, you know, to to use a technology where you don't have to necessarily run the wires or send people out to visit things um, can be very uh, uh, advantageous and can give immediate benefits. Ge geographically. Are you saying different – when you use that term, are you saying different areas of the country? Are you saying different uh, segments of the of a distribution system or collection system or something like that? I think it's more the latter. Okay. You know, things tend to be more regionalized, but, you know, just if you've got, um, you know, different elements of your system, uh, you know, just in different parts of a city or, or, or wherever it may be. Um, we've got one customer we're working with now that's um, making a sprinkler systems, and they are doing now – full municipality sprinkler systems where somebody can just control the entire uh, city park system from a single console. It's <laughs> amazing. <laughs> um, uh, two of the items you mentioned were quality and leakage for, uh, uh, you know, essentially sensors within the system. I've talked to other guests about, uh, you know, so, certain elements of this. Um, but can you, can, you know, in terms of quality and leakage, what, how how does how does the IoT application kind of work in those instances? Is it is it taking remote data and sending it back? And and how 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 accurate is are these sensors that are sending the information back? I mean, do you have any sense of that? Um, it, it, in terms of the, the water quality, um, there's there's a, a wide variety of sensors and sensor quality levels, and that's one thing that um, we're actually working with um, a company right now. And certainly there, there are certain levels, um, you know, in, in speaking in the pool industry in terms of chlorination levels and pH and stuff like that that can be continuously measured. Um, there are some other types of um, uh, issues with water quality in terms of uh, bacteria, some other chemicals, things like that, where uh, currently um, they have to kind of be sent to a lab and tested, mm -hmm. um, and we are working uh, on some newer technologies uh, that will enable that also to be monitored on the fly, um, or, or at least relatively quickly in situ. Um, so you can just kind of siphon off a small sample and um, and, and do a, a fairly rapid test, right? not necessarily as the water is flowing over the sensor. Um, but that that's an area that we're trying to get ahead of the curve. Um, the technology for sensing those types of things, or, you know, 100% of the uh, water quality testing is not there yet, but um, uh, that's that's something that we want to be prepared to be able to implement as those technologies start to come online. Right, and and so uh, in terms of water quality, is, is this is this kind of measuring chlorine residuals? Is it a water age thing, um, or is it is it you know what? Do you have any feel for that? Because, and, and the only reason I'm asking is I've got clients who, who have come up and said, hey, I've, I've got a water age issue, um, and I'm, we're, we're trying to work through it. But I'm just kind of curious how this technology might help them figure out better solutions for their water age problem. Yeah, I, I think that that's um, 
I, I'm honestly not sure the exact measurement techniques that would be used to evaluate that. Um, so that's something that uh, I, I would have to do a little bit more research on. Um, but I think that, um, you know, something like that where the water is not necessarily, you know, it's, it's, it's in the system, um, so you need to have remote sensors. You know, once you can figure out how to detect that, then you can uh, get the data back to where it's going to be useful to somebody, where somebody has to, doesn't have to drive around all day and, and, and check on things. So that's, that's really where it's going to shine, where you need measurements that are throughout the system and you can't just do, you know, centralized in one place and say, this is where I'm going to take my measurements. Right, right. Um, so, so that's, that's kind of all the distribution system stuff. What about applications inside the fence? Um, and, and, and let me give you a little background on this. I've had, um, uh, folks essentially say, you know, look, there's, there's no reason why we need a certified operator on site 24 hours a day. Uh, we, we could, it, it can be done remotely. It can be done, you know, and I just, I'm just kind of curious if you've seen applications that, that would allow, um, for kind of automated operation of the plant without physical, without personnel physically there. Yeah, so so let's hold that thought on the oil and gas. But I, I and I, you did a great job answering that question because the the reason no one's probably asked you to do that is in most states, at least the states I've I've practiced in, the the certified operators re- required by state regulation to be on site. You know, so there's no the, the the rules don't allow for kind of the remote operation. You know, I suppose I suppose the technology could be developed and then you could go to the the, the state agency and say, hey, look, you know, the technology works. Let's relax this rule, um, but but you know, and sometimes it's it's yeah, it, it's uh, sometimes I'm surprised at that. I mean, even to the point because somebody it's requiring somebody to take a leap and say, okay, here's here's a technology that could do it, and it's it's hard to prove that it's never going to be a problem if you don't have a person there. Um, but even like I was surprised, like in cell phones where they could be used on airplanes, you know, because <laughs> you say, you know, having an iPhone on and playing uh, Candy Crush or whatever, it's never going to interfere with equipment, but, uh, but somebody actually was able to take that leap and say, you know, it's the, the, the risk is, is small enough that it's the benefits are going to outweigh it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, so let's circle back to that oil and gas. Can you talk a little about automation in the oil and gas industry? How has, has IOT kind of, uh, uh, affected how, how those industries have, uh, you know, taken that leap, so to speak, so that they've allowed automation and IOT to, uh, or, you know, reduce their, their, uh, you know, human capital demand. Um, there's been a lot of, um, 
placement of sensors at, at kind of endpoints in terms of, of monitoring usage. Um, uh, so not just, you know, there's, there's been metering um, stuff, of, of course, in terms of uh, natural gas, um, but there's also been, um, uh, you know, placement of uh, sensors inside the home. Um, specifically, we've been involved in the uh, oil industry in terms of, of uh, in the, the Northeast United States, where we're located at least, there's still a lot of uh, oil tanks um, that are used for uh, residential heating and, and some uh, commercial heating spaces. Um, and, you know, the uh, monitoring of the oil that's in those tanks, as an example, is, is a, uh, uh, a pretty big expense for oil dealers because they have to get out there and they, they usually have a no guarantee uh, for homeowners and that requires them to sort of estimate and they tend to do a lot more topping off than they might otherwise do. So we've um, developed a, uh, working with a consortium of um, actually oil burner uh, uh, manufacturers um, and are developing specialized controllers that go into them and by monitoring the actual performance of the burner, it can keep track of the oil usage. Um, so there's, it's not actually detecting the flow of the oil, but just based on the characteristics of the oil burner, um, there is uh, an understanding of how much oil needs to happen to make that happen. They know what the temperature is outside. They know how long the system is on. They know, you know, how many gallons per hour are used um, to have it on. And so uh, they can go back and then that is reported back using a cellular link back to um, a main server, which then transmits the data to the dealers for when the tanks need to be updated. And it's a closed loop system in that when somebody goes out and looks at the oil tank and fills it, um, they, they go back to the sensor and say, okay, I actually, to fill it, I actually had to put in 173 gallons, whatever it is. And the oil sensor says, okay, I thought that I had used, you know, 178 gallons over this period of time, but actually I only used 173, so I'm gonna refine my estimate and improve from there. Um, so there's a lot of that uh, sort of by, by monitoring and, and by making these fancier controllers that they can, you can create these closed loop systems that have a much better idea of exactly, uh, you know, how much uh, oil is there in this case or, or how much gas is being used. And if the gas usage um, is, is varying quite a bit, then it can generate alerts that it's possible leakage and stuff like that. Yeah. So that's just one example of a way that we're using it in the oil industry. Yeah, that's, I mean, when, when you were kind of talking about that, that's exactly what I was thinking was, you know, leakage detection in, in the water industry. And I, I, I would guess that there's, there are utilities out there who are actually using that technology right now to try and, try and pinpoint leaks. sensors that are built into the sprinkler heads. And so the sprinkler heads know if they're supposed to be on or not. And then they, if they're not supposed to be on, but they're still measuring some flow, then they know that there's a problem and they can report back. Right. Right. And so, so, so let me kind of switch gears on you. We've talked a lot about kind of the applications. Let's, let's talk about uh, kind of a more foundational element, which is how, how do you get the, the data, the information from the sensor to uh, to the internet, to the the system, to, to so it can participate in this internet of things. You know what what are kind of the the, the you know the foundational elements that allow us to to transmit this data and get this data into in you know into a into a uh, a field where it can be used. So there's five main technologies. 
standards that we kind of use at this point, um, depending on the specific applications, um, the range, the two big ones being range and um, uh, battery life, um, if that's a requirement. And also, um, but you can also uh, get in, start getting into cost uh, and, and if there's data rates. So, you know, starting with the, the, the shortest range is just simple Bluetooth. Um, and I think most people are probably familiar with that, but it's, it's pretty short range. It works, uh, you know, usually with out to about 30 feet or so, um, but it tends to be low power consumption, uh, low data rates. Um, so it's not used particularly often, um, but for some specialized applications it can be. Um, there's also, the next one up is one that people may not be as familiar with, which is called Zigbee. And Zigbee um, is, a, is a, uh, uh, a standard that's, uh, again, shorter range. This one goes out to about 100 feet, um, and it's designed, uh, it can be certainly used for powered applications, but it's also very good for battery applications because it's um, a lower power consumption than some of the other ones that I'm going to talk about. And one of the interesting things about Zigbee that it's really useful for is it's what's called a mesh network, um, which means that um, if there's multiple sensors in an area, um, they, uh, the, the Zigbee nodes themselves, the sensors themselves have to talk to, since it's only about 100 feet or so, will typically talk to a gateway, and then the gateway is connected to the internet, you know, either just a wired connection or some other ways to get the data up to the cloud. Mm -hmm. um, but the uh, Zigbee, as a mesh, means that the messages going from the node to the gateway actually hop and bounce from node to node to node uh, to go longer distances than 100 feet. And the advantage of that also is that if, if a node goes offline or if somebody moves a giant metal object right next to a sensor that wasn't there before, it can usually find another way to get back to the central location. Um, and that can be, uh, so, so it's called a self-healing network. Um, so a great example of that is we use that in, uh, we did a, a work with a company that made solar panels and they wanted sensors on each of the solar panels. This was for one of the giant like solar farms um, uh, with a big aggregator. And um, so we uh, basically used a Zigbee sensor on each of the solar panels um, so that the messages could, uh, could, could hop from unit to unit to unit. Um, actually, let me take that back. It wasn't solar panels, it was mirrors. It was one of the, um, you know, the, the concentrators. We have the mirrors that track the sun and concentrate the sunlight into a central um, column. Yeah, C yeah. Selects the power. CSP. So that type of a thing. So these, these were mirrors um, that had motors, but they weren't necessarily all tied together. Um, so they could communicate with the individual mirrors using a, a Zigbee network. So they were close to each other and they wanted them to, um, to, to, to be self-healing in terms of the network. Um, the next up in terms of range is simple Wi-Fi, um, which most people are familiar with, um, which is really useful because it's most people know how to use it. A lot of times you can get onto uh, local other local Wi-Fi networks um, to get access, um, but it tends to be very power hungry. So if you if you want to have battery powered sensors, it's not as good. Um, and then the two longer range ones, um, next one up is what's called LoRa, um, which L-O-R-A, which actually is short for long range. And um, LoRa is a relatively new technology, um, which has been pretty interesting uh, on the market, which uh, goes, uh, ranges vary depending on the ultimate antenna on the, uh, the endpoint that kind of collects all the LoRa sensor data out in the field. Um, but typically it's good to about, you know, a minimum of about three quarters of a mile for something that's either located underground or has to go through a lot of buildings. Um, if you've got a big tower and more open space, it can go as much as three to five miles. Um, 
and uh, but still the, the sensors are pretty uh, uh, pretty power conservative and, and can easily run off of batteries. Um, but the data rates are very low. You know, with Wi-Fi you could transmit video. You know, with this you're talking about sending a few messages a day uh, with a lower network. Mm -hmm. um, and then at the top of the heap would be cellular um, and uh, the cellular sensors, uh, cellular-based sensors. Obviously, would just tie into the local three uh, G, four G network, whatever's in the area. Again, they tend to be a little bit more power hungry um, uh, because of the way the data is transmitted. Although there are newer protocols um, that people may start to hear about, if they do research in this area, called um, CAT and M1, uh, which is a special form of LTE service for the IoT um, uh, business. I, I think I was able to cram at least three acronyms into <laughs> uh, uh, which is designed with lower data rates, and it, it tends to be lower, a lot lower cost. Um, the, the other issue with cellular is now you've got to pay for your messages, um, with, whereas with all the other stuff, you really don't have to. Um, although lower, interestingly, um, just to go back to that for a second, a lot of utilities um, are getting involved in LoRa. Uh, LoRa, you can either set it up as a private LoRa network, or there are some municipalities which are setting up public LoRa networks, and Comcast, um, the cable company, is at the forefront of putting in infrastructure in cities to support LoRa. I think Philadelphia was one of their initial targets, and the LoRa, their, their LoRa backbone is live now, so anybody that puts LoRa devices in there can use doesn't have to bother with their own, you know, kind of central collection stations. They can just tap into the Comcast network. And Comcast has been very aggressive about moving into other cities. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's going to be interesting to see how that kind of pans out up going into the future. Um, so, yeah, so your Bluetooth, Zigbee, cellular, uh, uh, LoRa, and um, Wi-Fi are kind of the five big transport mechanisms. And, you know, they, 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 they vary in, in capability and cost depending on the specific application. You, you mentioned kind of the public networks and kind of the private networks. Is there, are there issues with security for these that, because I would think the, that uh, the utilities would be very sensitive about um, uh, hackers and, and, you know, malware and all that kind of stuff that can get in and, and really mess up their system. secure. Um, the other thing is that if you've got, we talked about in the beginning about monitor and control. Um, so if you've just got sensors that are monitoring but not controlling, so if you're just reporting on data mm -hmm. of, um, you know, that, that's going back to a central location, that limits the amount of mischief perhaps that people can do. Um, you can't, um, you know, if you, you can't tell water to shut off. You can't tell it to, to do something. Um, if it's just sensing and sending data back, um, somebody could potentially spoof it, but um, it's, 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 it's not going to be as damaging. Um, but the key thing is just, to, you know, most of the attacks that tend to happen tend to happen on, on the server side. Um, it's, it's not as, um, you know, if, assuming that your messages are properly encrypted, um, uh, you should be reasonably secure. Um, but if you're concerned about it, you can certainly set up a private network um, to talk to it. And, and mostly if you're going to do a Zigbee network or even if you're going to do a Wi-Fi network, um, you're going to create a private network and not necessarily go. It's not like you're, you're attaching to Starbucks 
and using uh, you know just unencrypted data that you're transmitting from Starbucks. Okay. Okay. So certainly something people need to be concerned about, and and when they're developing a system from day one, you got to be asking how is this going to be secure because most of the security issues are going to happen on the server side. Okay. People being able to get into your server and being able to to view data and information on that side rather than on the device side. Yeah. Well, let's talk about the server side then. So so can you kind of just introduce us to the server side? What what do we need to know about it? In terms of how how we access that data and how how it's presented to us, like the dashboard or an app or however, what you know, how, how does the the information from the server get get to the point where it's actually being used and manipulated by the utility? Tableau, 
um, and stuff like that. Or you can, if you have a specific need and this is what we want our dashboard to look like, then you can hire somebody to, uh, to, to program it and develop it um, for you for your exact specifications. And then you can also have an app, uh, so you can have a phone-based application um, that can access the data and show it on a tablet or show it on a phone. Um, and uh, you know that that's usually that's not as generic. Usually, that's very specific for an application. People want their apps to 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 look certain ways and to show graphics certain ways. Um, and same thing, you can set it up so you can just see the data on your phone, or you can uh, you know uh, adjust things using commands if that's um, if that's going to be appropriate. Right. So, uh, if I'm a utility, I'm always going to be worried about what this stuff's going to cost. Do you have any? I you know. For for the various levels that you could you could you could implement, you know what are we what's a utility looking at as far as as cost to cost to adopt? Sure. So starting first with cellular, um, there's there's kind of two components to it. One is the actual hardware of um, putting the cellular chipset in there, and the other is then that you also have to pay for the data, just like you do for your your own personal phone, um, and. Because you're, in essence, you're, you're putting a cell phone into the, the product, in, into every single meter or whatever it is. Um, so uh, the prices are, are very variable depending on the, the volume that you get. But, I mean, at this point, for decent volume products, we're telling people that you can stick a cell phone into anything for about $20. Um, and and it's, it's only going down. If you had asked me this question a year ago, I would have said $80. Um, but the prices have just been dropping dramatically. Um, Laura um, is going to be a little bit cheaper in terms of the hardware. Um, it's going to be uh, somewhere from like $10, 10 to $15, and, and Wi-Fi is also going to be around that $10 range as well. Um, in terms of the data rates, there's a couple of um, – that, again, is, is going to be dependent on your usage. And we've, we're seeing a lot of competition. We're, we're going to always a lot of discussions with Sprint and AT&T and Verizon. And they, uh, whereas three years ago, you know, uh, there was nobody to talk to about IoT transmission data. And they were basically like, you need a $20 a month data plan for every single device that's on the network. And it's like, well, that's not going to work. <laughs> now they have these specialized data plans for IoT. I talked a little bit about Cat M1, um, yep. which is designed around that. And then there's also um, another one called um, NB IoT. Uh, which is narrowband IoT, which is uh, uh, also just for just talking about sending maybe one or two messages per day of what what's going up with somebody. Um, and for those, um, the data uh, you can get a data plan of about fifty cents to a dollar per month per device, somewhere in that area, depending on the number of devices that you've got and so on. But um, so figure you know five to ten dollars per year per device on an ongoing basis. Um, and again, that's only going down. So if you jump in and you start uh, uh, you start uh, at least exploring um, uh, exploring it, um, and at some point during the conference, I'm going to need to say stick your toe in the water. So I, <laughs> um, you know, it's, you know, even if that may be a little bit more than you want to spend on a, on a device of, you know, 5 to $10 per year, um, it's only going to go down. It's it's certainly not going up. Um, and it's also nice that you can, um, most of these plans that you get um, with providers, if you have enough devices, is, is you get these data aggregation plans. 
So if I've got 10,000 devices and I'm allowed, you know, one megabyte per month is, is what I've uh, said I'm going to cap it at, um, then I in essence have 10,000 megabytes per month and I can divvy that up any way I want among all of the devices in the pool. So it pools all of the, the data. Um, so that gives you a lot of flexibility. If you, if you happen to have some sensors that are sending back a ton of data just because of the nature of what they're in and you've got other devices that are hardly sending anything at all, um, that's fine. And you don't have to pay the full rate basically for, you know, you have to pay extra for the one that's doing more. You can just aggregate all that together and just say on average, this is how much data I'm gonna use. So the, the telecoms are really been coming to the table um, it, with a lot of stuff. In fact, Verizon uh, even was at uh, AWWA and had a big booth there about that they've got this new specialized utility platform um, that they are um, they're starting to push to try to reach out to that market. So, so there's a lot of potential there and a lot of competition. So um, you can definitely uh, work them against each other to get better rates. Well, so, so that's a great segue for, for what I think my next question is. And, and if you recall, I started, started early on in this conversation by talking about a former client of mine who said he wanted to be able to shut someone's water off, you know, from an app on his phone. Where do you see with all this, with all these advancements that you're kind of seeing and, you know, with firsthand knowledge, where do you, do you have any thoughts on where the water sector is going to be in 10, 15 years uh, uh, from an IOT perspective? You know, I, I think the ultimate vision is for, you know, a 24-hour global view of everything that's going on in the system. Um, and uh, the cost of sensors is going down. The cost of transport is going down. You know, as equipment gets replaced, um, you know, we should start looking at getting stuff replaced with sensors built into it. Um, and we're seeing that more and more. So the idea is just be able to, to pinpoint exactly what's going on in the system at, at, at any time to be able to respond to it. Um, and then the other piece is, is trying to get more predictive. Um, you know, we're, we're doing that a lot with, um, uh, uh, we, we work with a company that does um, uh, controllers for uh, the sliding glass doors and supermarkets and malls. Uh, and, um, you know, they, they have a tremendous amount of data in those uh, controllers about what's happening with the motors. And they know if the motors are starting to wear out. They know if there's snow and ice buildup at the base uh, of, of the door. Um, but they have no way of getting that data to, a, to their service center to preemptively get somebody out there. So it's just waits, then the motor fails, and then the supermarket calls and it's a crisis, and they got to dispatch somebody on an emergency basis. Okay. There's, there's so much diagnostic information out there that they, they wanted to put cellular onto all of those doors just to be able to get that diagnostic information back. And I think that, um, you know, the water industry can take a similar approach and start getting, you know, start sensing if things are getting out of whack um, through machine learning, through AIs, just through, you know, through general rules-based stuff to be able to say, you know, we can preemptively see that there's going going to be a leakage, going to be a problem here, there's, there's unusual usage patterns, what have you, um, and, and just make the whole uh, experience both for the user and, and for the utility in terms of scheduling a lot smoother. Right, right. So, I mean, Jeff, you've done an awesome job. You've done absolutely uh, uh, fantastic 
you know, talking with us about all these different uh, uh, applications and technologies and things like that. What have I failed to ask? What, what you know, what, what, what points do you want to get across that I haven't really touched on yet? Um, I think the main message is that, it, you know, if you're interested in this area and, you know, it's, not something that you can just push a button and it's going to happen. You know, it's going to take a year or two to develop the product, to start to, to test it out in the field, um, to get to a point where it's co commercializable. And um, so, you know, if you, I would suggest starting as soon as possible. If you think you don't wait until you have an absolutely specific need and know 100%, here's my spec from top to bottom of this is exactly what I want. Um, you know, just do some basic demonstration projects. And we found with most of our clients is once you start thinking about if I could talk to something, you know, all the time and it could tell me what's going on and I could, you know, uh, you know, tune it or whatever. Initially, people start in one place about what they can do and then, you know, they start to just spin off the possibilities. Says, Wait a second, I could do this and I could do this and I could do this. Um, and it could help, to, you know, it could help them, it could help the users, it could help the maintenance people. There's so many different aspects of what it can be, but... Um, you got to start somewhere. Um, and so, yeah, the biggest mistake that we see people make is they wait until all of a sudden their competitor's coming out with something or, uh, you know, something's an immediate need and then they're scrambling to put it in. You know, you, you want to, it, it's, it's a different way of thinking, um, but the sooner you get started, the sooner you're going to have something ready to go. Right, right. Well, great job, Jeff. Thank you so much. Uh, for those people who want to find out more about you, more about Mars International, where can they go to find that information? services and also if you look at for cicada which is c-i-q-a-d-a that's our specific iot division uh, that kind of focuses on those products and so there's some more videos and, and other information about iot on that site awesome hey jeff thank you so much great, great speaking with you and i look forward to talking again thanks for having me you bet we'll see you bye we'll hope you enjoyed that interview with jeff engelstein uh he, he really has, uh, as you can tell, a great depth of knowledge about uh, IoT and the technology and the technological aspects of how you get uh, sensor data to, from one point to another, how you control things remotely, things of that nature. And so uh, uh, I, I think he gave us a pretty good vision of, of where water utilities and the water sector is going to be. Um, you know, where, where we are, where we're going and where we're likely going to be in 15 or 20 years or so. So, uh, big thanks to Jeff for taking time out of his day to speak with us. We talked for probably 10, 10 or 15 minutes longer than I thought we were going to talk. Uh, so it was a, it was a great conversation. And again, thanks Jeff. Well, what interested you about the conversation with uh, Jeff Engelstein? You can check out the show notes. You can leave a comment on the show notes uh, at the watervalues.com forward slash pod one, two, eight. Uh, again, leave a comment on those show notes, or you can email me at david at the .com. You can also tweet at me at my Twitter handle, which is at DTM1993, and tweet about the podcast using the hashtag watervalues. And again, if uh, you're enjoying the podcast, please leave a rating or review on iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, or any other podcast directory that you happen to be listening in on. Thanks so much. Well, in closing, please remember to keep the core message of the Water Values Podcast in mind as you go about your daily business. Water is our most valuable resource, so please join me by going out into the world and acting like it.
You've been listening to the Water Values Podcast. Thank you for spending some of your day with my dad and me. Thank you for tuning in to the disclaimer. I'm a lawyer licensed in Indiana and Colorado, and this podcast does not establish an attorney-client relationship with you or anyone else. Information in this podcast should not be considered legal advice. Further, this podcast is not a solicitation for professional employment. I'm just a lawyer who finds water issues interesting and who believes greater public education about water issues is necessary. And that includes enhancing my own education about water issues because no one knows everything about water. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you next time.